Welcome to the Journey Further podcast, where we learn from the people and businesses who are dedicated to doing things differently, people who are on a mission to change things for the better. Today's guest is Bruce Daisley. He is VP EMEA at Twitter, the author of The Joy of Work, and also host of a fantastic podcast called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. What follows is a really interesting conversation with lots of tips about how everyone can make their work lives a little bit better. Let's go. Bruce. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. I just wanted to start by asking you a question which we begin all of our discussions with, and that is, what's the wrong you want to write? I think what it's become, the the wrong that I want to write is the the idea that effectively work is causing mass unhappiness across society, and it's often not recognised as the cause of that. The challenge that's happened as well over the last few years is that the way that society's been set up and actually things like the cost of property have contributed to this, that everyone has started to believe they need to be thinking about their work and the way they're going to earn money continuously. And so if you... If you take that as the context, the context is that, you know, the average property prices used to be three times salary. And now the average property prices are between six and eight times salary, more than 10 times salary in London. It's no wonder that people have this daily preoccupation with, I need to earn money to try and establish my place on the property ladder. And and that seems to be a proxy for, I need to establish my place in society. And um, the, the consequence of that, is that work becoming increasingly toxic and increasingly unhappy feels like that's the burden that we need to bear as part of justifying our position in society. Just the whole system seems to be incredibly riddled with these toxins. Um, And that's become my obsession. You know, you meet so many people when you meet them either socially or you meet them in a work capacity. And the first thing they say is how busy they are and, you know, how exhausted they are. And it, it just feels like that's not, not the natural order of things, that we're not meant to feel that incapacitated by the jobs that we do. So that's what my focus and my obsession has become, really. Nice. And when did that become, when did those problems start to become apparent for you? It's like I think almost when you enter the world of work and you're like young and fresh and um, you maybe don't reflect in that kind of way, when did you start reflecting on those type of issues which you've described? Yeah, um, definitely what I've seen. So probably I'm I'm sort of significantly older than yourselves. And uh, what I've seen is that in the course of my working career, that work has got progressively worse. And that's not a reflection. In fact, there's some evidence that senior people have a much easier life than junior people. So it's it's not that I'm going into this rose-tinted ivory tower and all of a sudden, you know... I'm I'm observing something, but just witnessing the toll of work upon the people that I work with, the people I work with and the people who, you know, form my friendship groups or people who talk to me after I do talks, it's pretty clear to me that work was always demanding, but that you would almost leave work and there was a hard stop and you would leave the office and you weren't followed by emails everywhere you went. And the, the toll of work upon us is evidently having more impact. And you see evidence of this. There was a wonderful article in BuzzFeed at the start of 2019 that was about how 
um, a journalist was describing the burnout epidemic that was going on. And she said she'd found herself thinking about work all of the time, largely because society taught her that she should be thinking about work all the time. It's, it's largely a consequence of, you know, there are some societal things that have happened as well. If you went back a century, the idea of having a career was non-existent. You did the job that your parents did, and you did that between when you entered the workforce and when you left the workforce. The idea that we would all be on this conveyor belt of career progression is actually a construct of the last 20, 30 years. But what that has done, that construct of the last 20, 30 years, has made all of us constantly insecure and anxious about whether we're making progress that, you know, if, if, you, if anyone ever has a baby, when the baby's been tracked through 40 weeks, there's a little chart, a graph of where you sh- your progress should be. And all yeah. of us effectively do that for our careers. It's like we look around and one of the lessons I think of the internet of the last 10 years is comparison leads to unhappiness. But comparison also exists in our jobs. We find ourselves continually thinking, am I making as much progress as Dave? Am I making as much progress as Sarah? And, you know, we're, we're trapped into this model of a career, which is actually a very recent evolution of the way that we think about work. And that obsession is actually harming the way people progress. People get stuck in a rut almost as a result of it right yeah and and, and we we are starting to see people opt out of it people thinking i don't want to be part of that rat race but they're the minority and you'll witness those people you'll probably know people who are like yeah i don't want to be part of that normally artists decide define where the culture is going and it's quite often artists and the remaining artists the remaining people who do something artistic who are opting out of this so i think through their behavior we often observe where society is going to end up yeah it's, it's interesting you mentioned about um our model of work actually coming from hundreds of years ago there's one thing which you write in your book, which I was speaking to my colleague Neil about, and it was about shortening the work week. It's almost like we're still structuring a lot of the work we do as if we were working in a factory or something like that. And we, that hasn't changed very much. Like, what's the, what do you think is the sort of damaging impact of that? And what, how can, might people approach changing that aspect of their work life? And look, and I recognise some of this is first world problems because, you know, especially if you're on a zero hours contract Mm. or if you're struggling to to get enough work to put food on the table, then the idea that someone wanting to work a shorter week because of the, the luxury of their affluent lifestyle must feel insulting. But the way that work is having a toll upon a lot of us. I checked someone yesterday who'd had a breakdown, who'd had burnout. And she'd gone back to her family uh, and she, she'd spent about 12 months just living away from London with her family. And during the course of those 12 months, she came up with an idea that now she's just got £6 million worth of funding for. She set up this incredible business. And she said, she, she described to me the symptoms of classic burnout, where she felt overwhelmed by work. She felt like she wasn't being her real self. She felt like she was having no ideas. And it was that headspace of escaping that constant overload of information that gave her the the breathing room to actually have ideas. And actually, if we look into the way that our brains work, the neuroscience of that seems to be pretty well proven, that we seem to have our best ideas when we're in something called the default mode, which is when, you know, I don't know if listeners will remember boredom. 
But boredom was something that, you know, when you had nothing to do, you'll remember it from your childhood. Uh, boredom Summer was... Summer holidays, yeah, you know, yeah, that's terribly right. bored. Boredom, yeah. long eliminated now. It's a relic of the past. Kids in the future will only read of this. But, um, but you know, it, boredom seems to be the time that we have our best creative ideas. So, you know, you'll, I suspect most people will have their best ideas these days when the battery on their phone's dead... And so they're sitting on a train and they just start thinking about something. And that noodling, that absent noodling, seems, based on the evidence we have, to be one of the most productive times of us coming up with good ideas. But no. we've sort of eliminated it. And, and that woman going back to her home, she had allowed herself to have that headspace to think of it. How can people try and carve out that time or try and get that time back for themselves? It's almost something like once you do actually experience the benefits of it, then it's like, then you'll make the time again. But almost for someone who is so caught up, where do you start in trying to do that? There seems to be some really good pointers to what we can do and how we can access these things. So for example, there seems to be really good evidence that um, going for a walk makes us more creative, but actually going for a walk in nature makes us even more creative. And the nature thing is a really interesting discovery, I think, of, of recent uh, science. Effectively, I think all of us are increasingly living in a world where the self, where oneself, our own thoughts, become this preoccupation. So a narrative of our career, a narrative of our life becomes increasingly important. And what appears to happen when we go out into nature is that rather than the focus on the self, we're reminded of how completely insignificant we are in the grand scheme of things. It's that sense of wonder if you've ever... I live in a city centre, so, so you know I never see the stars. But that sense of wonder if you ever go on your summer holiday and you gaze up and you see the, the galaxies and the... the so constellations yeah. above you and you're reminded immediately that how microscopically tiny you are and it seems like when whenever the, we have experiences that remind us how insignificant we are it pushes back that preoccupation with the self and we seem to be uh, liberated by it we seem to be liberated by thinking about our connection to other people by liberated by our connection with the world around us it seems to be incredibly positive so i think things like that you know, you sometimes hear it described as rewilding, just going out into the into nature, reminding ourselves of our sort of animalistic background seems to be one of the most productive things we can do to reconnect. Yeah. And there's, there's, a, there's one thing you talk about in your book, I think it's kind of related to this, about defining your norms almost. When do you cut off from the world of work and go and find that time where you do something else or where you get creative? And I was kind of reflecting on this. We've had some young people join the company recently who are fresh out of university. This is their first full-time job. And it's almost like that's a great opportunity for them almost to define their norms at that point and not get pulled into the bad habits, which people who've worked in nine to fives for a long time might have. I guess, could you say a bit more about what, what, how do you define your norms and how can like a team work towards actually ensuring those are kept and are healthy? I think this is probably the most crucial thing for team cultures. So we, we form cultures largely by observing how things get done around here, right? We, by observing how other people do things. And for, for team cultures, if the boss emails all weekend, then that becomes the norm of the way things get done. Or if, um, if people routinely 
try to um, Uber's a classic example of this so Uber's culture was always be hustling and so their view was rules were something that were to be observed and acknowledged but to be skirted around and so the impact of that was that existed within the organization and it existed in in everything they did so the impact of that was that there was no respect for rules but it had it had the impact internally people didn't respect rules so they they didn't respect norms of behavior mike isaac wrote a brilliant book this year about uber called super pumped which tells incredible stories of how their morals were sort of subverted over time so i think it's that it's like establishing in our team we don't email at the weekends in our team we call a day at work at five o'clock on friday in our team we try and take a lunch break in our team we never say half day to people when they arrive at 11 o'clock and it's just trying to establish the ground rules that determine what good behavior looks like it's interesting you mentioned about uber i listened to your podcast with what's it shane isaac mike isaac mike isaac sorry um and that made me reflect a little bit on what's the difference between creating a culture where there is just there's a it's just a good place to work and then the type of cultures that lead to really high performing epic growth companies like uber it's almost like i think the questions you were asking him were around like what can we learn from a company even though their culture has been derided somewhat you can't take away from how fast they've grown yeah it's almost like what are the interesting bits from that what are the lessons that other businesses can learn from a company that's grown so fast almost when when like increasingly we're talking about dna editing and there seems to be something in there were some parts of the dna of uber that were incredibly successful they they spawned into different cities into different countries far faster than any business that i can ever remotely remember really they they were opening new offices in india in china in new cities across europe at an incredible pace and there was something in the way that they did it, where they realized we're never going to do this in a command and control format. We're never going to do this by mandating people spend all their times syncing with each other on these global calls. So the way we're going to have to do it is by giving people the autonomy to do what's right in Chicago, do what's right in Leeds and, and set that up. So I guess... Most organizations, Netflix described this in in their culture document. They said broadly what happens is as companies grow, they become more bureaucratic. Uber knew if they become bureaucratic really quickly, they weren't going to get anything done. So they had to to make a trade-off. The way that Netflix do it is that Netflix say, and again, I don't admire a lot of the things about Netflix culture, but the way that Netflix do it is they say, okay, we're going to set very simple ground rules and allow people to operate within them. So one of them is if you're a director at Netflix and these you know, several hundred, several thousand directors, every director at Netflix is given the permission to sign off several million dollars worth of expenditure. Incredibly trusting and it's sort of focusing on autonomy. The way that uber did it is they said we want everyone to have total autonomy now probably if you underpinned that with a very strong moral code you could have customized it and adapted it in a different way but everyone was given complete autonomy and the one of the ways that people worked around that is they said and the philosophy they were telling their drivers was don't worry about the law we'll pay the fines 
And so as a context for someone who's the boss, no one worries about consequence. Yeah. You know, there's no concern about consequence. So as a result, people were tracking where Beyonce's Uber was going. People were... Um, doing advertising that was incredibly sexist, saying that, you know, maybe your driver will be a hot, hot model. And they were just doing things that probably were quite injurious to the brand. Along the way, though, they grew far quicker than any other taxi firm we've ever seen. Yeah. So I'm fascinated. Could you have cut back on a couple of those things, but still kept the fast growth? I guess the question is, does fast growth belong to the devil? You know, is yeah. it only those horrible things that allow those things that fast growth to be to be possible? Really, it's really interesting, and I guess part of it comes down to obviously lots of companies speak about themselves as being sort of values first companies, values driven companies. But there's a there's a kind of difference between having a set of values and then having a set of actual behaviours which everyone actually abides by. I guess. How how do you what's your perception on how values and behaviours actually contribute to someone having a a, um, a positive experience at, at work, especially if it's new to someone? I guess to have to be working in an organisation where that's the where where it's purpose driven. But how can how how would you say people can really sort of cotton on to their organisation's purpose and actually make it? I guess get some meaning themselves out of it. Yeah, I work at Twitter and. and um I would say that we've had seven values on the wall for the whole time I've worked there. But far more instructive about how people work in the organization is the way that leadership model behaviors. So our chief exec has been chief exec for about three years, I think, uh, Jack Dorsey. Um, it's his second time being chief exec. But he does something where he says, okay, our solution has to be that we're going to be transparent about everything. And... So if we ever come to a situation, can we optimize for transparency? So one of the ways that you might observe that is you might observe that we moved from publishing monthly audience figures to daily figures uh, about a year and a half ago. Now, we all knew that that comparison might show us in a worse light. It was a lower number than another social network that, that at that time seemed smaller than us. So we knew that that comparison would be bad. And Jack was like, okay, but we're just telling the truth. So why would telling the truth be a bad thing to do? Yeah. Um, or when it comes to, we, we publish a lot of what governments ask us to do. We, we reveal all of it. So at, he optimizes for transparency. But what that means is anytime that someone else comes to a decision, what should we do in this case? Everyone always now in the room says, even when he's not involved, says, well, we should err on the side of telling it the truth. Now, let me tell you, the first time, as humans, we're programmed to want to conceal the worst parts of our personality, the worst parts of what's going on. Yeah. But when you live in an environment where you're like, okay, well, we should just tell the truth. And so, you know, things routinely, when, you, when you're involved in a big company, go wrong more often than you would like. You know, there's, there's been an error with this new bit of technology. There's something didn't go the way we intended. Someone made a, a genuine, uh, well-intentioned mistake on this. And we always start the room by saying, okay, so when are we going to make the announcement? And so for me, those things are really fascinating. They're very instructive mm. because rather than a value on the wall, it's 
modeling behavior. When a boss models behavior, it has far more impact probably than just having a set of values that are on you know, T-shirts and, and posters. Yeah, it's almost saying we have a way to approach this when something goes wrong. We know how to approach this. It's like a learned behavior, essentially. And, you know, if that old, the old truism is that a principle's only a principle when it costs you money. And so if you've got a set of rules that you know are going to continuously, at a fork in the road, any time that you're pr- faced with a choice, which is like, do I reveal this or do I tell the truth we always now optimize for okay we're going to tell the truth now it almost without exception leads to 24 hours of of bad news we had um a pass a password error about 12 months ago Mm -hmm. but the interesting thing is that when we announced it that some of the passwords hadn't been stored in a fully hashed format so we instructed a certain number of users to to change their password but when we revealed it um the immediate commentary was Twitter announced this wrong. And then a lot of the people in the InfoSec community said, we shouldn't criticize Twitter for being honest here because what's the incentive for any other organization to follow what is honest, transparent, truthful? Um, and so a lot of the journalists actually said, no, no, you know, albeit that this is a bad mistake, we should salute the fact that they've been honest about it because it breeds greater integrity in the, in the tech community and that type of honesty coming from the top is that what encourages people further down the organization in their teams to be honest with the person they're reporting to i guess to go i think i've messed up this campaign i think i've absolutely <laughs> I think i've said the wrong thing to this client etc etc and, and it becomes a learned behavior because every time every time you reveal something that you don't want someone to know We've got humans have got this ability to catastrophize consequences. So we imagine it's going to be far worse than this is going to be the worst thing that ever happens. Mm-hmm. And then you reveal it, and pretty quickly the world adapts to that new reality. And when you've gone through that cycle a couple of times, you realize, okay, we're going to reveal it. It's going to be bad for 24 hours, but we're going to feel better yeah. the, the fact that we've we've shared it. I think human beings have got a desire to avoid shame. You know, there's I, I, in in the book I'm reading at the moment. There's a really interesting thing which might seem like a tangent, but um, shame seems to have a real burden on us. So, uh, in the book I'm reading, Lost Connections by Johan Hari, he talks about in the era of HIV/AIDS epidemic in the 1980s, 90s, the people who weren't openly gay seemed to, to die earlier than the people who were openly gay. So the people who were sort of bearing the shame of of their true identity, it seemed to have a burden on Through them. A, a mental impact. Yeah, it seemed to, and, and mentally transferring onto their physiognomy. Yeah. That they seemed to, um, the shame seemed to weigh down on them. So humans seem to have like this, this desire that we, we think things are going to be way worse than they are. And it creates this pull on us. Hey there, if you're enjoying the show and want to get access to tons more interesting stuff just like this, then you need to join the Journey Further book club. Just go to journeyfurther.com and follow the link. Back to Bruce. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, sort of taking a bit of a, a, bit of a turn, there's, there's something you talk about uh, in the book about hack weeks. Um, and we had, a, we had a sort of hack week recently, hack day, um, 
which was really good and some good ideas came out the back of it. But when I reflected on it, I was almost like, was it too structured almost? Was it like too structured to try and get an output from it? Which almost perhaps limited the sort of some of the creativity which might come out of that type of stuff. And you just talk about the way that Twitter even came about in the book and the way that you do hack weeks now, it seems like quite like an unstructured approach to creativity, almost separate. I think you talk about setting people a theme and just letting them run with it. So there's normally one or two limitations. So it might be, it might be, it's got to be something to do with time of day. <coughs> it's got to be something to do with uh, geography. So there's normally one or two limitations okay. placed on it. Through experience, we've learned that if you place limitations, it's better than saying you can do anything. But what we've also observed is if you um, give some sense of recognition from it, it seems to do better. So in the past, we've said, right, the best two ideas we're going to make happen, and we're going to make them happen in three months, or we're going to fund these ideas. This time round, we had quite a lot of machine learning, artificial intelligence things that were really clever and because of the way that they were constructed could actually be adapted into the product really quickly. So I think people have got to feel like this is an outlet for some of their wildest ideas. It's an ability to collaborate with other people, but this isn't just, you know, an end of term performance. This isn't just like a school play. This has got to feel like we could actually change the business by doing this. So some sense of... We ha- as a voted for, so okay. you know, Twitter has about four thousand people. Uh, as a voted for, and the the ones that get the the best votes generally become part of the product. So I guess it's a thing about empowerment, just as much as it's about the ideas which come out of it. It's a thing about actually just empowering people to say, look, the stuff that you, the ideas that you have, can become a. Yeah, very much so. And then what you have is that people who've sort of been carrying around this idea for a couple of years start thinking, right, how can I make this real? How can I get three or four people who collaborate on this and try and bring it to to actually be uh, realistic enough that you can actually experiment with it and enjoy it? Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, I have to ask you about the evil mill owner. Um, I think it's just a character from your book which has really captured um, lots of people's imagination. Can you explain um, what an evil mill owner is and and why it's so easy for people to fall into the trap of being one themselves? I I think the evil mill owner was brilliantly described by someone I met who runs a a sort of crowdfunded publishing company. And he said to me, you know, I think I'm one of the good guys, but I know inside of me there's an evil mill owner who when my team aren't at their desks at 10 in the morning or when my team don't seem to be back from lunch at 2 o'clock, the evil mill owner starts thinking the worst of everyone. They start presuming that this is bad behavior and, and you know i need to create more rules i need to start clamping down the work ethic isn't right and i think all of us can recognize it i said i mentioned earlier that you know when when i when i actually when i started at twitter i used to, i said to the team look the only thing that's not acceptable is if people get up to leave at four o'clock we don't say half day yeah. because almost without exception we've sort of got um 
you know, hardworking team, almost without exception. If someone's leaving at four o'clock, they've got a reason to leave at four o'clock and they're probably incredibly embarrassed about the walk out of the office. They don't want to be spotted by people. Uh, and those norms are sort of pushing... They're, they're, when people say half day, it's the evil mill owner. It's that voice that unfortunately prevents us all from doing our best work. So yeah. I think that was the idea of that. I, it was such a vivid description the way he gave it to me. I thought, yeah, I recognise that. I recognise that because that's me quite yeah. often. And I, I've seen I've seen it on myself as well. It's been interesting that now the phrase is used around um, my office. Right. When people hear someone make a comment like that, they'll be like, oh, that's a bit evil millonary. Amazing. Evil millonary. So it's like, it's <laughs> almost making people aware right, of their okay. behavior there and then. I guess, but the, the, there's... In terms of how people, um, in terms of that sort of problem of presenteeism and the flexibility which a lot of places are going towards, there's there's science to say and there's research to say that people managing their time in their own way is much more productive, right? Yeah, here's the critical thing. The, the challenge of modern work for, for a lot of us is that we struggle to measure whether people are doing much work. So, you know, if your job has increasingly become answering emails and doing meetings, well, it's no surprise that it's very difficult to measure whether someone's creating something. But the evidence seems to be the more that you can actually give someone specific things to accomplish and you let them go out and do them in their own way, they get more done. And the, I guess the challenge of work for a lot of us is that there's so many barriers put in our way now that... We're managing an inbox that doesn't ever seem to stop. We never reach the stage where the inbox is dealt with. We're invited to meetings all the time that half the time we kind of want to be included on them. But when we turn up at them, they feel life sapping and utterly demoralizing. And that's the challenge that we then start mistaking presenteeism, people sitting at their desks, as a good way to see whether they're actually working well and whether they're getting their job done. And this is kind of relates to the results only work environment right which is almost yeah we're going towards this goal and whichever way we can get there is is okay have you seen what are examples of that actually working have you seen that firsthand where that type of culture well i guess i guess back to what we were talking about before um the the way that uber was was trying to give Mm. complete autonomy to its workers led to this incredible growth and you do see big examples where People give their workers autonomy to get the work done. Look, you know, all the people who you see working for themselves, it's it's complete autonomy where people feel quite often that they're being more productive. So there are good examples of it. The danger is that modern work is becoming increasingly bureaucratic mm. and those bits of ingenuity, creativity are being crushed out of people. You know, it's not helped by the fact that companies are becoming bigger and what you observe now with more and more big companies is that they're scared to allow their workers to have autonomy. So you, you hear rules where you hear certain big advertising agencies ban work, ban drink from their working environments. Why? Because if you just ban drink at a big global level across loads of people, it just minimizes the legal exposure. 
look, you know, these good things and these bad things about drink, but allowing a team of 20 people to decide those norms themselves probably is better, but just doesn't scale to a big organization. Or I saw uh, Oracle, the big technology company, they asked their workers not to become Facebook friends with each other. Why? Because if you heard about someone's uh, sexuality or heard about their behaviors there, and then you made a comment about it in the workplace, that comment in the workplace creates corporate exposure. And and that's wow. the challenge. Big organizations often do things that are completely unhuman, but it's just to minimize their own risk. Because there's, there's a lot of discourse at the moment saying, like, in the future, the typical size of a company is going to be a lot smaller. What's your what's your sort of view? Is that a hell? Is that a good thing ultimately? Or I, I certainly think the working group within a company should be smaller. Right. One of the reasons why it's so burdensome for for a lot of people in big organisations um, is because if you've got an organisation of five thousand people, even a thousand people, you you find that the volume of emails goes up. People are constantly trying to keep everyone updated, keep everyone in the loop. The volume of meetings goes up. And so just because you're in a bigger organization, it's harder to get things done. It's back to what Netflix said. You know, the, the trade-off seems to be beca- you become bigger and more bureaucratic and whether they wanted to do that. So I do think a lot of organizations will start thinking, right, how can we create units that are smaller? These, how, um, how small is a how small is a unit? I guess it depends on the about hundred people. If you could try and keep units to about hundred people, and you see there there are really good examples of organisations that when they reach hundred people, they say right, we're splitting into two teams. When we reach hundred people, we're gonna we're gonna create a new centre of gravity, so those people go over there and those people go there. But if you've been an organization that's grown from 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, the idea that you hit 100 and then you're no longer going to be part of a big family seems often quite uncomfortable. But if we look at the experience of the people working in those organizations, the people who join an organization at 200 don't have the same experience who join it at 30. And the best thing we can try and do is understand the limits of humanity. There's this probably something that you're aware of, which is Dunbar's number. Done by this, yeah. um, this sort of psychologist, anthropologist, a guy called Robin Dunbar. And he was really fascinated with how um, apes and monkeys spent so much time grooming each other. They were spending like four hours a day just sitting, picking the fleas off each other. But there seemed to be no correlation between whether they were short-haired monkeys or long-haired monkeys or the environments they, were, they lived in, they were just spending this amount of time. But he also observed something, that the bigger the monkey's brain, the more other apes they would groom. He was okay. like, well, this is really interesting. So small-brained monkeys will groom like seven, eight <laughs> monkeys. Big, bigger apes will groom like 20, 30 other apes. Well, so it's their, it's their emotional intelligence. The bra- their brain that. seemed to have something in it that trusted more. So he plotted how many, if humans' brains were plotted in the same way, right, how many okay. would humans uh, trust? And it was 150. Right. So he thought, hang on, that can't be right. 150. And he, he actually thought it was, um, it, I think he thought it was too small. And so he started looking for the impact of 100, the incidence of 150 anywhere in human civilization. He said it's everywhere. It's the average village size in the Doomsday Book. It's the average village size up to like the 1850s. 
Um, it was the the average Christmas card list size in the 1970s. You know, there seemed oh, to be throughout uh, human civilization that human beings could only trust 150 other human beings. But the whole of modern work has has pushed against that. We've to a, to some extent sort of ignored that limitation thinking well look, you know we can have these big email lists that allow us to connect with more people or our social networks allow us to connect with more people and we're not recognizing the, the actual hardwired limitations of human brains well, that's really interesting i'll have to look at that um i wanted to ask you a bit about sport so i know you spoke to a few people on your eat sleep work with pe- podcast recently um, I thought the Barcelona way episode was particularly fascinating, particularly all the interesting anecdotes and stuff from football clubs gone by. Um, but what do you think um, people in the business world can most learn from the sporting world about culture and performance? I think um, what you normally observed in sporting environments. So I was fortunate I chatted to the the head of psychology for the England football team as well, yeah. Gareth Southgate's England football team. So I was really interested. These are like the teams working on the biggest stages. What are the ways that they think about building teams? And there are definitely some things that we can observe and some things we can't observe. It's far easier to observe performance in sport than it is in modern work. Yeah. It's far The cycle of feedback is far quicker. Because if you're playing a game every every week or every four days you can observe things and adjust far quicker than you can in business they've got a finite end to a season where you can relax and, and recharge work generally doesn't but aside from those things we can learn really strong lessons about how you build cultures how the the stories you tell to reinforce messages the uh, i mean the the lessons about Liverpool under Jurgen Klopp, for example, I thought were really fascinating. He did a few things. He built a very strong sense of psychological safety, meaning that if you make mistakes, he will take the blame. He won't blame the the individual concerned. Um, He was he built a very strong team bond. So and that extends to the support staff. It probably extends to around a hundred people. So you know his philosophy was how can we move move from I or me to we, how can we make everyone feel like they're part of a collective? One of the ways he did that is at the Melwood training ground where Liverpool train. He made sure that in the summer, I think he joined the club, uh, yeah, in the in the summer, and he learned everyone's name at the training ground. So on the first day back from training, he went down the line, he said, this is the guy who does pot washing, this is Phil, this is... And yeah. he introduced every single person and introduce first name terms. So everyone was to, in, to speak to each other on first name terms. So it builds this sense of familial bond amongst that community of people. Yeah. And there are really interesting lessons in some of the actions he's done. If you observe Jurgen Klopp's behaviour and compare it to another very high profile manager, you know, Mourinho or uh, Pep Guardiola, he it's very evident that he's far more inclusive. Yeah. He's far more, uh, he has a direct bond with his players. Um, so we can't always learn everything from these situations, but we can learn certain pointers about how we build a team and, and how we develop a team culture, I think. Yeah, definitely. That's really interesting. Now, I just wanted to finish off with a few questions about your sort of personal mission that you've been on, I guess. Um, 
you obviously talked about when um, you talked about when sort of workplace culture became really interesting for you. I guess how do you motivate yourself to sort of keep pursuing this and keep spreading this message? Um, you know, like so, one of the questions I often get asked is like, where do I find the time for it? And you know, so I'll give you an example. When we're recording this, I've had a very intense two months at work, mm-hmm. and so. I've not really done as many podcasts. I've not really done as much because by the time I've got to the weekend, the choice was do I want to sit and do a podcast for nine hours um, or do I want to just recharge myself? So, you know, there's some balance in that in making sure that I don't... I've got to practice what I preach to a large extent. The, The critical thing for me is that, you know, I've got someone who's close to me who says in their job, they say... You know, everyone at my work is deeply unhappy. People cry in the toilets. There's just a constant sense that we're set upon by bad bosses. And I think that's the experience for a lot of people. A lot of people either feel they can't get anything done at work or they feel uh, they're in a toxic work environment. There was a piece of work a couple of years ago saying to people, um, how many how many of us have got a toxic colleague at work so not necessarily a toxic boss mm. and the results came back that about 65% of people felt that there was someone in their work environment who was toxic to be around and so work for a lot of people has got you know um, 40% of people have got no friends at work work is just it's, it's a strange thing it's a bit like when you were at school it was embarrassing to say you liked school and as a result of that, it was embarrassing to aspire to like school. You know, oh, we all hate school. What's your favourite lesson? It's playtime. Like, you know, and we bring that attitude to work a little bit. So we feel embarrassed to, to sort of feel like work should be something that can be enjoyable. Work should be something that we should be able to to readdress our relationship with. And so that's I, I'm convinced that a lot of people have got a horrible time at work. And some people are shining a light. And the more stories you hear, I guess that's what motivates you to keep going, keep going. And Yeah, that's it. And I'm just inspired. I met this wonderful woman um, called Heidi Edmondson, who works at an NHS hospital in North London. And what I love about this is that, you know, it's a job that people are drawn into working in the health service for good motivations. Yeah. But often they, the realities of the job present themselves and so the realities of the job are there's not enough resource and there's not enough time but she introduced um, a tiny bit of of experimentation to see whether she could deal with the burnout that her team were experiencing so they're given 10 10 minutes every day for training and she said we're not using all of these she was especially fond of creative writing of, of drama so she said why don't we introduce one of these lessons once a week um, some some of these theater games that i do in my theater classes and so i number one i love the restrictions that go into that no budget no time what can we do but the way that she used theater games to transform the culture and the environment in an a and e department in north london for me, it's just a real wow. illustration that all of us can do these things. Yeah, almost taking stimulus from other worlds of business or whatever that might yeah. be and applying it elsewhere. Um, have you had much, on this journey you've been on, have you had much criticism or cynicism from, from people you've encountered? And if so, like, how, have you, how have you dealt with that? Um, you know, occasionally people... I'm the first to criticise Silicon Valley companies, so, you know... 
quite often the things we hear about workplace culture you go to a search engine you search great places to work and you see a slide or you see sort of these things that are irrelevant a little bit um but i'm the first to criticize those things but you do hear people are critical of some of the the big tech firms um people occasionally i guess you know i, I guess it's an ongoing debate so the criticisms are often about some of the people who maybe simplify how you can solve this, I think. Mm. I had a guy I interviewed a few weeks ago who was very, uh, very reductive about, you need to stop this, you need to stop this, you need to stop this. And the interesting thing about that, he, albeit he does workplace research, um, I actually sort of, he annoyed a lot of people who listen to my podcast. And I actually went and looked at his company on Glassdoor, which is like no, the, which episode you're yeah, yeah, about, I think, and yeah. Uh, the reviews for his company were appalling. Right. So it's like it's really interesting that often the people who've got the most simplistic answers don't necessarily practice what they preach. Yeah, it's a really complex. Yeah, topic. great. I just wanted to finish up then. Thank you so much. It's been a really interesting discussion. Um, just by asking these three questions, which we ask all of our guests: What did you used to believe that you no longer believe in? I used to believe that work would be made better with technology. So, you know, quite often my LinkedIn is full of people saying, we want to present to you our new app that's going to fix work. Or we want to present to you, you know, our new solution. It's like Slack, but better. And I used to think, okay, we can solve this with technology. And I think my feeling now is that we fix work by not by bringing more technology to work, we fix work by bringing more humanity to work. I think that's really interesting because we, we use a tool as a piece of technology to measure people's engagement, employee engagement scores. It's interesting to see what it gives back, but then it's also like there's so much more stuff that you that's can right. do besides that before you get bogged down in looking at one piece of tech thinking yeah. that's going to and, and save you. You know, the, there's a rule, I forget what this law is called, but it's called as soon as a measure becomes a metric it loses all value. So as soon as you, as soon as a metric becomes a target, it loses all value. So as soon as you say uh, waiting times in NHS hospitals are something you need to measure, right, that's actually really, it, it, it describes the patient experience. As soon as the goal becomes no one can have waiting times of longer than four hours, you watch what happens in hospitals. Yeah. The, they Basically, everyone gets to four hours and then aggressively they make sure that the, the person at four hours is triaged and, and moved into a different department. And it actually, it no longer becomes an effective measure of patient experience. It just becomes a hurdle that people are dodging around. And I think that's it with employee engagement. I've worked in places where bosses have gone around saying, OK, we need to get these scores up. Can you make sure everyone does this? Let's do the training course the week before that it, it ceases being an effective measure so I think that's the challenge I working at a technology firm I, I, I'm more balanced now with seeing how the solution will be partly through technology but, but more through humanity I think interesting um, if this wasn't your mission helping people make their work lives better what would be uh, I was Greenpeace collect. I was a vegetarian anti-vivisection activist at like 11. Wow. I was a Greenpeace protester at sort of uh, 16, and it would be something to do with that. Yeah, right. Okay, great. And finally, uh, if you could recommend one book for members of the Journey Further Book Club to read, what would it be? 
I'm loving it's here actually. I'm loving Johan Hari's Lost Connections, which was a, uh, came out last year, and I, I sort of ignored ignored all the chat about it. Then it's ostensibly about depression, and I think that might put some people off. But it's actually about the need of, of human beings to connect with other human beings, and it's just such a brilliantly constructed read if you're only going to do one thing I'd watch his new TED talk on it so he's done a TED talk on it I think if you do that I think he illustrates just some of the ways that society has maybe misdirected ourselves the the central principle he says is if we talked about depression uh, and instead of the word depression we used the word disconnected disconnected it might force us to choose different solutions so normally when people are depressed it's because they they feel estranged from the community around them the way he describes it is he says that human civilization for 200,000 years has been all about building tribes and connecting with each other and that was our superpower and what we've done in the last 10 years is start dismantling our tribes and it's having this big impact on our psyche fascinating sounds great Uh, Bruce it's been a great conversation thank you so much for taking the time thank you for inviting me thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed that please remember to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review in your podcast app we would really appreciate the feedback also now is your chance to join the journey further book club this is a community designed for time pressured marketers and we have over 800 members from many of the world's leading brands We read the best business books, just like Bruce Daisley's The Joy of Work, and we try and share bite-sized insight from every chapter so you can quickly understand the big ideas and put them into action. We host some great events with the authors too. Finally, if you have any ideas or suggestions or any extra feedback that you want to share with us, we'd love to read it. So please just drop us an email, podcast at journeyfurther.com.